Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone, my, and, and um, the people here as well as um, the people on VTEL. Um, my name is Joni Spring, and I'm the Director of Nursing Operations for the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Um, and I'm very happy to welcome you to the Marilyn Bedell Distinguished Lecture in Oncology Nursing. Marilyn is here with us today, down here in pink. So. <laughs> I believe most of you know her know her well. Um, I'm just getting to learn to know Marilyn, which has been great. Um, today we're going to be talking about survivorship throughout the cancer continuum and the implication for nurses. Um, before we do that, um, as you know, there's all kinds of housekeeping kind of issues that we have to go through. So if you'll just be patient with me, I'm going to read the things that I'm supposed to read. Um, and then I'm going to introduce Diane Stearns, who's going to talk a little bit about the history of the Marilyn Bedell Lecture series. Um, so first we're going to read the conflict of interest statement. So if I'm teaching to the test, just remember that we discussed the conflict of interest statement. <laughs> um, the speaker, Dr. Meyer, is an advisor to Care Vibe. The speaker's role was validated by independent peer review by the activity director and determined to be free of commercial bias. All potential conflicts were resolved. The planning committee members for this program report no financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. So that's done. Um, for continuing education credit, you must attend 80% of the program to receive credit. For nursing credit only, after the program, you will need to sign in if you haven't already done so. And then you'll receive an email from Judy Langens with a link to an online evaluation form. The CNE office values your feedback regarding this program and invites you to take just a few moments to complete the evaluation. Your feedback is very important to the continuing um, offerings. At the end of the presentation, we will allow some time for questions and answers for Dr. Meyer. And the activity code for this session will be provided outside the auditorium after the session. I would like now to introduce Diane Stearns, who is the lead nurse practitioner for the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. Um, Diane and Marilyn, I'll let Diane share, but go way back. So I thought it was appropriate for Diane to talk a little bit about the history of the Bedell Lecture. So turn over to Diane. Good afternoon. It's so exciting to see the room filled for this special event that we have here. And it's my honor and privilege to introduce, um, uh, to tell you some stories about um, Marilyn Bedell. The Marilyn, well, I won't tell you stories. To tell you about the, how this lectureship came to be. Um, many people in this room, I saw people as they were walking in, have been touched by Marilyn um, and the leadership that she's provided to oncology nursing over the years. And I personally thank her for taking a, um, an interest in a very young nursing student now 30 years ago. <laughs> Thank you, Marilyn. So the Marilyn Bedell Lectureship um, came about um, a number of years ago um, in recognition for the contributions that Marilyn has given to the institution and to oncology nursing. 
Marilyn retired from her position as the inpatient nursing director of hematology and oncology and the associate director for oncology nursing at the Dartmouth Norris Crime Cancer Center in January of 2007. The Cancer Center then established the Marilyn K. Bedell Distinguished Lecture in Oncology Nursing to honor the exemplary leadership she showed over the course of 35 years of caring for patients uh, with cancer and their families at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. The lecture brings a distinguished guest speaker to the Cancer Center each year to address relevant trends and future directions in oncology nursing. And this year, we're very fortunate to have Deb Myers join us from the University of North Carolina. And so Joni will do an introduction on Deb. Okay, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Deborah Meyer. Um, Dr. Meyer is an advanced practice oncology nurse who has consulted with organizations on issues to improve cancer care and has over 30 years of cancer nursing practice, education, research, and management experience. Dr. Meyer earned her PhD from the University of Utah her MSN from Yale University, her BSN from Excelsior College, her nurse practitioner certificate from the University of Maryland, and her diploma from the Pennsylvania Hospital School of Nursing. Um, Dr. Meyer is past president of the Oncology Nursing Society, was a member of the National Cancer Institute's National Cancer Advisory Board, which was, by the way, a presidential appointment, um, and Board of Scientific Advisors. She is a fellow of the American Academy of Nursing. She served as the editor for the Oncology Nursing Society's Clinical Journal of Oncology Nursing from 2007 to 2015. She has published almost 100 articles and book chapters and lectures internationally on oncology nursing issues. In 2015, the Oncology Nursing Society recognized Dr. Meyer's contributions with the Lifetime Achievement Award. It's pretty, that's pretty awesome. Um, most recently, she was appointed to the Blue Ribbon Panel for Vice President Biden's Cancer Moonshot. Um, this working group of the National Cancer Advisory Board will recommend how to best advance the themes of the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. And I hope that you'll find a few minutes to talk to us a little bit about that work. Um, and um, by the way, she's the only nurse appointed to that Blue Ribbon Commission. So. Um, Dr. Meyer is also, in addition to all of those things, a professor in the Adult and Geriatric Health Division in the School of Nursing and the University of North Carolina Lineberger Director of Cancer Survivorship. Her program of research focuses on the issues facing cancer survivors and improving cancer care. She also, in addition, has a clinical practice working with breast cancer survivors. So please welcome me in joining, please join me in welcoming um, Dr. Meyer. <laughs> Do I need to keep both microphones on, or does it matter? I'll just walk, because I'll walk around. Um, thank you for having me here, but it's more important to be glad that Marilyn's here. And I thought, what a wonderful opportunity to say thank you for all the things you've done for oncology nursing over the years, and how wonderful it is that Dartmouth has 
chosen to recognize and honor your contributions in this way. I think it's very impressive, and it says as much about the institution as it does about you that they've done this. And I actually spoke with Kathy Mooney, who was the first recipient of this wonderful award just yesterday, and she was saying how it was still a memorable visit for her and how much she enjoyed being here. So thank you very much. It's, it's a special visit for me for all those reasons. So I'm going to talk about um, a lot of different things, but I'm also open for discussing whatever topics that you'd like to bring up. Of the oncology nurses in the audience, how many of you have been in practice in oncology for two or under years? Okay, for five, five or under years? Okay, between five and 10 years? 10 and 15? 15 to 20? And over 20? Wow. So it's a really very nice mix. And the only thing that was wrong about my intro is that it's actually been over 40 years, which is the only way I could have done all those things, because it's been over a long period of time. <laughs> So what I'm going to be doing is, this was the disclosure statement that was um, read to you, is what I'm hoping to do is to go over sort of some survivorship numbers and trends, because I like numbers and I like to have one of those t-shirts with the universe that says you are here, and then um, define cancer survivorship, because that's who a cancer survivor is, because that's, that's up for debate, and then talk about the needs across the cancer continuum, and then talk about what that's going to mean for us in the future for the rest of our careers, whether you have, like me, single digits left or like others who have double digits left. Um, so I'm going to go over a little bit of some of the cancer statistics, but we know th that the boomer tsunami is here, and I don't even know how many numbers of people are turning 65 each day, but we also know that we're also increasing the number of minorities in the country, and in North Carolina, the largest growing population is the Latinos in the state, and as they age, they will be at higher risk for cancers as well. And right now we have about 1.6 million people diagnosed a year, and it's going to go up to 2.3 million a year. So just think about your clinics increasing by that percentage and where and how you're going to handle that number, okay, of new patients, not counting the follow-up patients. And that's coming, and so we have to think about how we're working and how to do it better and how to maintain the quality of care we're doing. So just to point that out is when I started oncology, it was 1975, we had 3 million survivors. And now we're projecting up to 2024, and we're going to be having over 90 million survivors. That accounts for 5% of the US population, just so you know. The other scary number is that about between 15 and 20% of all new cancers are in somebody who's had a previous cancer diagnosis which means both that they're high risk the first time they're diagnosed for a future cancer, but when they walk in the door with their second, third, and possibly fourth cancer because they're living longer in the exposures, they have all that history to bring in the room with you. So they may be reacting not to you and this experience, but what happened last time. And if it's for some of the people I treated, we were using Composine for adriamycin because we didn't have the antiemetics that are available now. And so their experience of what chemotherapy may look like may be thinking about what they went through before. So we have to remember um, to get a good history on people about their experiences. And this is another 
think this orange at the bottom is the number of new cases, and that's going up gradually. But what's really causing this slope to grow is the people who are living longer. And the red bar is less than five years, the greenish is five to 10, 10 to 15, and 15 and above. And we know very little about patients five years and beyond in the cancer survivor continuum. Unlike pediatrics, we've done a not such a great job in tracking adults and looking at long-term and late effects, et cetera. So we have more information about the needs around the first one to three years, and it drops off precipitously at five years. Now that, we hope, will change with some new cohort studies that will follow um, adults longitudinally so that we have better data to predict um, risk and uh, problems. And this, again, is something that you may have seen. The purple is 65 and older, but that green is working adults. That's 40 to 65. And I was just asking about your infusion area because at UNC we just, just in this day and age, 2016, opened our infusion areas to the evening and weekend hours for working adults. Okay, um, and on holidays. Because you think about somebody who has an hourly job and we have them come in how often and at what times that we offer. So we have to make sure, and that's 35% of the population we're working with. And I'm not really gonna address pediatrics and, and not really adult, adolescents and young adults because that's a whole different area. We also know that the biggest group of survivors are breast cancer survivors and prostate cancer survivors at about 21, 22%, and colorectal at 9% and then G weigh in at 7%. So when, when October everything turns pink and everything seems to be about breast cancer, it is because it's a quarter of survivors. But we also need to remember that there's a lot of other survivors out there than just with breast cancer. And that's a whole political discussion of itself. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so there's lots of ways to be a survivor. And the politically correct definition is from the time of diagnosis on. And a lot of this work started with Fitzhugh Mullins' New England Journal of Medicine seminal um, article on seasons of survival in the 80s. And that's when people started paying attention to survivors. And then the NCI developed the Office of Cancer Survivorship in the 90s. And that started when money started to be put into research. So you can see where the attention started growing. But not all survivors are equal. So you have survivors who have no evidence of disease, and probably less than 10% of them are fine and have no other issues related to their cancer and live happily ever after. The other 80 to 90% may be um, having at least one treatment complication. Many have four and five on average. That's a long-term and late effect. Or they develop a late recurrence and die from that late recurrence. And we know that breast and melanoma are two cancers that that's more common in. Or that they go on to develop a second, third, or fourth cancer. And I had a colleague as an oncology nurse who had Hodgkin's disease in her 20s and got radiation and chemotherapy and, of course, then developed her breast cancer from the radiation in her early 30s before we knew that was a risk. So everybody was like, oh, no, you can't. We don't have to do a mammogram. You can't have breast cancer. But of course, she did. And then developed bladder cancer years after, probably from her adjuvant chemotherapy. And now is living with heart failure and um, significant lymphedema. But she's here after three cancers 40 years later. So I mean, there's these trade-offs of that. And then there's those who never get to be in no evidence of disease 
or in remission. There are those who live with intermittent relapsing illnesses like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma or ovarian cancers where we know what the pattern may be. And then there's those who never get in remission. And they are considered survivors too, but the things I'm gonna be talking to you about today, they're not usually considered in a lot of the studies when we talk about survivors. And they have unique needs of living with active disease or on and off treatment that are not being addressed by the things I'm going to be talking to you about today. And that's a fertile area for further research and attention because they feel, they feel like they're invisible in all this. And I don't know if you, any of you know about the Metastatic Breast Cancer Network. They've done a great job in, in expressing those issues and one of their mottos is stage four we want more mm -hmm. and they want more time and they want more research and I think that's true I mean there's a lot of groups of survivors that just haven't had this limelight on them the way um, some of the other survivors have so when we talk about survivors it really encompasses all of that but what I'm really going to be talking about is the first group who are living cancer free because I'll be talking about some of those issues but in in some Survivor is a general definition, is anyone who's lived through a potentially deadly or life-altering event. It could be Sandy or Katrina, it could be a rape, it could be cancer. There's, people view themselves as survivors of life-altering events. It's a dynamic process. You don't just have it happen and you're stuck where you are. It's, it's changes over time. Um, and it involves uncertainty because you never know what's going to happen again. You never know if another hurricane's going to come by again or whether you're going to be safe or whether the cancer's going to come back or something like that's going to happen. And it's usually a life-altering experience. I would challenge you to remember any patient that you've taken care of who hasn't had their life altered in some way because of their having had cancer. Some it's more subtle, and in others it's more dramatic. I think in all my time I only had one patient who left his family and moved to the Southwest to make Native American jewelry when he found out he had stomach cancer. But most people, change the changes in their lives are more subtle and happen over time. Um, the other is that there's always both positive and negative, and, and the question that most people hate to be asked is, well, what's the good that's come out of this, and would you have rather not had cancer and not have the good that comes out of it? But people make silver linings out of most of this in many ways, and when I, you know, it wasn't enough that I've been doing this since 1975, but I joined the club in 2007, and I think that the only real silver lining I have is I really had a line in the sand of saying, I'm not going to do things I don't want to do. I'm not going to go to meetings I don't want to sit in. And I'm not going to work with people I don't want to work with. And so I've really been able, because there's enough good people to work around with. Why would you work with somebody who's negative or not fun to do stuff with? Um, but with all these generalities, it's, and, and making it a universal experience, it's filtered through who the person is, right, and who they are and what their experiences have been, and what have you. An example being, we've done some qualitative interviews of parents with metastatic disease with young children about their parenting while living with metastatic disease. And I was surprised in doing the qualitative um, analysis about how many of them also had parents who had cancer and died when they were children. And I was really struck by the number. It was, a, it was a larger than expected number for the sample that we had. And it made me think about the ghosts that they carried into the room with them that I'm not sure anybody else appreciated that. Their fears about leaving their children are amplified by their own experience. And so we have to remember that we have to understand what their filter is going through all of this. 
Now, this is some of the history of it, and I'll go through this quickly, but um, the, almost the year I was born, survival rates were 30%. And then 75, when ONS was established, survival rates, five-year survival rates were 48%. And now it's a little over, it's probably over 68%. So we've flipped the numbers in that time. So when people say, you know, where's the cure? We've not made any progress. We have. It's just not as visible to the public who don't understand all these things. And this is, um, in those days, the good patient was the one that did whatever their doctor told them to. And, and we have moved beyond that for most people. I mean, my grandmother stayed that way even when she had cancer. She wanted her doctor to tell her what to do and was surprised when we gave her choices about uh, mastectomy or lumpectomy and, and couldn't understand all that. But now we've moved into this whole thing of being empowered. And that's usually associated with higher socioeconomic status and being activated. So there's a whole group that's not in that category, but we're sort of teaching people and expecting them to be involved in their own care. And we're moving a lot of the care into self-management or care, family caregiving. What, first, we, people were only in the hospital. Now they're in the outpatient. Now we're moving a lot of this to home care. And we're expecting the family to pick the, up on this or the patient themselves. And um, I'm not sure that's right or fair because not everybody has those resources. And it's fine for the people who do and want to do that, but we need to make sure we're screening for those who don't. And one of the things, I just had a hip replaced a few weeks, well, two months ago or three months ago, but one of the things that I was really struck with was how um, standardized their care was. They probably didn't even know my name, but except for the barcode on my band to get my drugs. But, um, but it was very clear. They all reinforced the same rules. I was in one day and I was home the next. But they all assessed my home safety, um, who was going to be there, all the arrangements about all those things. And I'm not sure we were as thorough with our patients and families about their ability to pay for things or to get back and forth, or we hear about it after they don't show up for their clinic appointment or what have you. So we're getting more sensitive. So the Office of Cancer Survivorship came along, and then the seminal report from Lost in Transition from Patient to Survivor was published in 2005-2006. And that was a real turning point for everybody's attention to understand more fully, even though there were papers in the past about this, about the fact that we treat them and treat them and they feel lost at the end of that. And so it was saying we can't, we need to do a better job in the transition from being on treatment to being off treatment and for the needs of people that go on way beyond their diagnosis and treatment. And the following year, the other IOM report called um, Cancer Care for the Whole Patient was dealing with the psychosocial aspects, and that's how distress screening came out. And the survivorship care plan was a seed planted in that IOM report, which you can appreciate and thank them later for. <laughs> Um, but that's sort of how we've gotten to here. And then the war on cancer was Nixon in 1971 when the National Cancer Act came out. And we were in Vietnam. So that, that was sort of the mentality. And then good old Lance Armstrong brought the, brought the competition into it. And we were going to beat this thing, which is not something that necessarily works or people need to hear. And now the metaphor is being on a journey. Now, those are not bad metaphors, but patients hate them. And they don't want to be so. Oh, you're on a journey. You'll be. You'll get some silver linings out of this when it's all over. That's that's not. That's for us to talk about this whole field. But it's not necessarily what you say to patients or talk to them about because it's their own story, and we don't know what their story means. And and we found like 
I, I work with our cancer support program, and when we discuss patients weekly, you know, some of this is very traumatic, not because of the cancer itself, but what the person brings. Like somebody who was sexually abused, and then they get a GYN-related cancer. I mean, that really triggers a whole host of other things. So we really have to think about what this means for that person. The main thing that came out of the IOM report was the recommendations that we needed to be aware that needs continue way beyond diagnosis and treatment, that survivors of care plans would be helpful for people ending treatment with curative intent. Now, that was based on a couple of focus groups of very highly educated people in the Washington, D.C. area. And because the clinicians who were involved in this report thought it was a good idea, it was not an evidence-based recommendation which is why there's been pushback about implementing them because everybody's like, show me the data, you know, where, where and how is this working? And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but that's where that idea came from. And then the other was needing evidence-based guidelines for following up people off treatment. And NCCN is doing a good job with their survivorship um, guidelines, but there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. And then how do you measure that? And what's quality care look like in that period of time, not just during treatment where you, it's very easy to measure mortality, you're alive or you're dead, but it's really hard to measure the morbidity over time and other kinds of changes. So there's a lot of research questions in that. So then um, they identified the essential components of survivorship care, which include prevention of recurrent or new cancers as best as possible, the surveillance for them in case they do occur so that they can be picked up early, um, and also for the long-term or late effects. Um, and then intervention, oh, this is, I thought I corrected the spell, spell type, so well. Intervention for consequences of cancer and its treatment. And then the core, this, this bottom bullet is really the nut to crack, the coordination of care through communication between specialists and primary care providers to ensure that all the survivor's health needs are met. And I'll talk about that more because I've done a number of focus groups and interviews and studies using the survivorship care plan as a tool to do some of that. But let's first talk about long-term and late effects. And I don't know how, are you familiar with the Lilly Oncology art competition? So the, some of the artwork I'm using is from them. And um, it, a picture's worth a thousand words. And if you could actually read the small print, there's words like fear and joy and, and all that in, in this. And it's called The Road Home. Um, but we know that people are at risk for long-term and late effects. But it depends on the type of, not only the cancer they have, but the type of treatments they had. And then also the comorbid conditions. On average, cancer survivors have three comorbid conditions. So what do you think that the most common three comorbid conditions are? Diabetes. Diabetes? Uh, well, all kinds of heart disease. And usually arthritis or musculoskeletal issues. So those are the three most common. Um, and you can imagine how that interferes with, you give somebody who has all that arthritis and aromatase inhibitor, you may not be doing them favors on the one hand. So these are the most common. And so when you think about these and we give drugs that interfere with cognition or peripheral neuropathies, or you could go down almost all these um, radiation to the head and neck as far as hypothyroidism. Um, we're giving drugs that cause hypertension now. Um, we give we give 
steroids to diabetics for anti-emetic control. So you can just imagine what's going on with that. And one of the things that we don't do a great job of is incorporating the primary care provider from day one. And they resent that and, and feel out of the loop, and their patients pick up on that. Because we don't say you should continue to manage all their other chronic illnesses or their non-cancer-related care up front, and we should be. And we should make sure the patient understands. And so we do things like we save the patient a trip, and we write their antihypertensive medications, and we think we're doing a favor. And what we're doing is we're creating a wedge between them and their primary care provider. And then when treatment's over and they show back up, they're like, well, what's gone on? Because if they're not in Epic, they may or may not have been getting any notes or anything to know what's happening. Um, and, and who's really going to manage all of these? Do we really want to get into the primary care business while we're doing this? Um, and then many of you may be familiar with Betty Farrell, Marsha Grant's model for quality of life. And I, I describe it to patients as there's four buckets with these areas. These are common problems in survivors. But somebody can have a big hit physically and still have a good quality of life because the other three buckets are good. Or vice versa, the physically they may be doing well, but their psychological or social aspects may not be doing well, and they may be having problems with that. So I try to make sure that when I'm visiting with somebody that I'm asking questions in each of these areas. And one of the things that I do, because I live in North Carolina now, which I never did when I was in Boston, was um, the spiritual well-being. I talk a lot about church going, because that's a great area for social support. And you never schedule a focus group on Wednesday nights, because that's Bible study night. That's when everybody goes to church the second time. So that's a big area of social support for Southerners, which I never appreciated being from the Northeast. So you have to think about how systematically you assess these areas. But what survivors are looking for at the end is somebody to help them pick up the pieces. Usually that first six or 12 months after diagnosis and treatment, they're putting one foot in front of the other. I'm supposed to come here for blood work. I'm supposed to come back for my new lasta. I'm supposed to get this scan or that. I mean, it's all the patient and their family can do to master the schedule of what's happening and to keep it together a little bit, but maybe not a whole lot. And then when it's over, just think about it. If somebody has GI cancer and they're getting chemo every two weeks for six months, and then they say, you're done, we'll see you back in three months. That takes away all the support of the staff and the patients who are on the same schedule in the infusion room, and all of a sudden it's gone. So patients clearly say they need help picking up the pieces. And it's often that second year when they're off treatment that they start emotionally absorbing what happened to them. And so it's not unusual to see a spike in anxiety or depression when treatment's over. And that's because they're, they're actually understanding and absorbing what hit they just took. And so it's our job to help them in that transition and to make sure there's also a primary care provider out there for them for the rest of it. So I'm just going to review some studies. There's not a lot, but there are a few about what we do know about studies. The American Cancer Society has done two studies, one cross-sectional and another longitudinal. And this is a cross-sectional study of survivors who are two, five, or 10 years out, over 1,500 survivors, about their unmet needs. And what they found, it didn't matter how long they were out from their diagnosis, and that many of their unmet needs were related to their physical feelings or condition, financial, and information. And I'm going to show you a list a little bit more detailed about that. But so you can see somebody 10 years out, and they may still have unresolved questions. And when I sit down with women with breast cancer and give them their care plan, often I have to re-explain their diagnosis. 
Not that they didn't know they had breast cancer. They sort of figured that one out. But the details about it or why they are or aren't getting hormonal therapy, et cetera. And because they only absorb about 10% of what you're telling them. And if you're not giving it to them in writing as well, you should assume they don't know it. Because I've done focus groups with patients with metastatic disease or non-metastatic disease, and they will say it just it's it's a blur. And what they one couple and I shared this in an earlier group about a woman with metastatic disease that she and her husband would be in the visit, and the only way they knew what happened was when they did their copay, the receipt had their next appointment at the bottom of it. That's all they could remember of what they were told during their visit. So we should be thinking about how do we augment what we're saying with some kind of recommended documentation and not necessarily that four-page or five-page AVS um, that we give out of EPIC. And this is another, a couple of studies that I've combined that about a third, this really shocked me, about a third of survivors experienced symptoms equal to being on treatment when treatment was done. That's pretty significant. Um, and the most common that they had are this sleep, cl this cluster of symptoms that we know, which is poorly managed pain, poor sleep, and fatigue as a result of that. Um, and then when you have all those, you, it leads to depression. So if we hear any one of those symptoms in somebody we're seeing, we should be following up with those others because more likely than not, they're experiencing more than one of them at a time. And we also identified higher risk patients, which is almost everything we do for poor outcomes in morbidity and mortality is people with lower socioeconomic status have poor outcomes in every aspect of this. So we really penalize people for being poor and for being low, lower educated. Um, it doesn't matter so much about race, is if you're in that group, you're not gonna do as well. Um, and, the, and the other thing is if you're younger, and, and younger, they define that anything less than 65, so I'm still considered young. Um, but the, the, a lot of studies have done about gero-oncology is that this may not be the first major assault somebody's gotten who's lived that long, and that they have other um, stamina to address some of those things, but that younger people going through life, this may be the first time that they're facing something big going on and that they may need more support as a result of that. And I'm not sure how clear this is. This came out last week, and so I didn't have time to transpose it. But the Cancer Care just published surveys that they did on 3,000 survivors and caregivers. And I pulled out the one that's just related to survivors, which were about 500 patients. And this is changes in life since cancer diagnosis. The first group is physical, emotional, social, financial, and spiritual, almost that um, quality of life model I talked to you about. And they looked at it by age. And so the younger age is on the left. And so what you can see here is the younger patients have more of the blue bar, which is a lot or complete changes than the older group, then they call that 55 or older, but nobody has zero. Nobody's down to less than 10% that you might think is not that significant. They're all over 10%. And when you look at the younger adults, 25 to 54, that working population, they're over 50% in almost all of them until you get down to the spiritual, a little bit of financial. So this is, these are people who have had a significant change in those areas after their cancer. They also asked them about impact on relationships, and this is the same group. And it says, um, 
this is agree or strongly agree. My friends and loved ones have provided me with wonderful support and care. That's not what you'd like. I mean, they're good numbers, but wouldn't you like it to be over 85% or something like that? Um, each, for each new day, I feel more grateful than I did before I was diagnosed with cancer. I appreciate my friends and family more than I did before my diagnosis. I look for the good in people in situations and more than I used to. Um, and then when now we start dropping down and it's male and female, so you can see the differences between gender. Um, other people with cancer have been helpful in supporting or advising me. My relationships have become stronger since I was diagnosed and since my diagnosis I discovered friends I didn't know I had. And so people's worlds are altered. It's not just themselves, but everything around them is altered as a result of this. And then this is the last one from that study. Cancer related to stress. And I know that we're all, based on the IOR report on treating the whole patient, we, we are trying to implement the stress screening. And this is about distress. And again, it's the younger on the left and the older on the right, which is the impact of your cancer on your family, how you feel physically, finances, ability to work, ability to do things you love to do, how long you expect to live. And again, the older group has less of an issue of highly or extremely distressed. But when you look at highly or extremely distressed, those are large numbers that are still distressed about the impact this has had on their life. And I'm not saying that we as oncology um, professionals can fix all of these things, but would certainly will influence the care we deliver and some of the resources we can marshal for people to help them with some of these things. So overall, in summary, what we've learned from survivors is that there are many unmet needs after treatment's over. Um, many are related to information and emotional needs. There's one slide I don't think I have in here, which actually said that their diagnosis and testing are things that they still have a lot of questions about. So asking a broad question like, I know since your last visit, you probably are thinking about a lot of things. Is there something that bothering you or you would like to ask today while you're here? Is a very broad question, but may get at some of those things. And that very few survivors have no problems. In fact, it's the minority of survivors after treatment have no problems. Um, and that there's few long-term longitudinal studies of adults available to help inform what we do or interventions that may help them. So now that we know that, how can we do a better job? Well, I'm sure implementing survivorship care plans has not been easy, nor distress screening. And those are just the big areas that have been identified as ways to start addressing them. But they're not checkboxes to say, oh, we do that now. We need to think about how we overcome some of these barriers. And one of the biggest ones that I think is around the coordination of care about people outside of your system, the primary care providers in the community or other providers that are delivering cancer care out in the community, if they're not within EPIC, it's as good as being invisible or not done, is how do we coordinate that care so the patient feels like we're all on the same team and it will help with under and over testing for surveillance. There was one study that looked at colon cancer survivors and, and you know that they're supposed to have a colonoscopy within a year of diagnosis, and then if everything's fine, not to do it again for every three years. And in big Medicare studies, it turns out that they're getting them every year whether they needed them or not. Now, for those of you over 50, you know having a colonoscopy is not fun. To have it more than you need it is probably not something you're going to sign up for. Um, so we need to think about that over-testing and then under-testing about people, once they get a few years out, are they still getting the surveillance 
that they're supposed to be getting for all of this. The electronic records is a big help in some ways, but there, you know, you what year did you implement Epic? Uh, 2011. So you've had it. We went 2014, and people are still twitching. Um, but it's helped. You're still twitching too. Okay. I think I actually every place I go, it seems like we should have epic support groups. But it's been helpful in many ways. But it, in some ways, I feel like we lose sight of who the patient is in it. We got a lot of check boxes and a lot of things we can look up, but you don't really necessarily get the whole essence of who that person is and their story um, around what's going on. But we need to figure out how how we can marshal that to help us deliver that kind of care that we want to. And reimbursement issues I can't touch because that's all about to change in a big way and we have no idea what that's going to look like um, or whether that's how we're going to continue doing what we do. And then there's a lot more research that needs to be done, including models of care. There's no good data on saying this model works in this population, this model works in that population. Mary McCabe and Kevin Effinger, when they were doing the survivorship committee for ASCO, wrote a couple of papers on models of survivorship care. And what they proposed doing is doing a risk-based model. Uh, my personal opinion is, in centers that aren't like MD Anderson and Memorial Sloan Kettering, survivorship care should be embedded in the tumor groups that are delivering them because they know the patient and they know that disease and what to look for. And that to have a specialty survivorship clinics, again, segments the patient away from their team and further complicates the care about the coordination and communication of care. And that's what patients would prefer. But we also have to figure out when they can stop coming to see us. Because there's nothing, I, I swear patients think that we have magic in our hands and that when we lay hands on them, they're covered until their next appointment and everything's going to be okay. And, and there's nothing magical about that that they think is going to happen. And, and as I was telling the group before, somebody referred a patient to me for follow-up care who was 18 years out as DCIS survivor of breast cancer. Really? <laughs> I mean, really? I, what are we doing for somebody like that? She needs to get an annual mammogram and an annual clinical breast exam, and her PCP can do that fine. So we need to think about now, on the other hand, if it's somebody who's had a bone marrow transplant and they have a lot of toxicity from that, that person may never go back to their PCP alone. So it's, that's a risk-based approach as to how high risk they are for ongoing problems that we need to think about how we address this. Now, I hope this can work. And, and this is something that was in New England Journal of Medicine. And, and this is just one patient okay, that went to see a PCP and had a problem that need to be evaluated. And I'm hoping this will come up. I've heard your internet was slow. <laughs> I have to see it over here. My eyes aren't that good. Okay. Now, this is for one patient, and you don't see one patient a day or have in your practice. <laughs> if it will work. <laughs> ah. Just watch this. Hmm. 
That's from one patient. Okay. Okay, now how do I get back? There's no nurse on that. So over that time period, 12 clinicians were involved. The primary care provider communicated with other clinicians 40 times. This was with a patient who presented with this uh, probable malignancy. And eight phone calls and 32 emails, and then with the patient or wife 12 times, and the patient went, underwent five procedures and 11 office visits, none of them with the primary care provider. It's no wonder our patients are brain dead and can't absorb what's going on in many ways. And you multiply that by how many patients we see. And this is a lot of complicated care. And so we have to figure out how do we keep people in the loop that needs to be and how to manage some of that in a little bit better than we have in the past. But I thought that was a good visual representation. And somebody actually did a graph for oncology in this way that did include the other providers. But this is a more static picture, and I think that the live picture is very powerful. But the problem I see with all of this is there are many transitions in care, not just survivorship care. And so all this attention has been about checking a list because the Commission on Cancer is requiring a survivorship care plan. Up for the first 10 years after the IOMA report, very few people did them for very few patients some of the time. And it wasn't until the Commission on Cancer put that in as a standard that it became a stick instead of a carrot. And then all of a sudden, people are like, how are we going to get this piece of paper filled out and check it off the list, when in fact, that's really not what the whole thing's about. And then the other is there's lots of transitions that we should be doing something equivalent to the survivorship care plan, including at time of diagnosis, where we write down not only the diagnosis for the person, but also their plan of care, not just giving drug sheets. And I know that you do something a little more involved than that, but just imagine one of the things, a good communication strategy is ask, tell, ask. So you ask about permission to tell them sort of what the plan is, and then you sort of tell them what it is. But then the, to double check their comprehension, you can say, I know your family members or friends are going to be asking you about this when you go home. What are you going to tell them? And you'd be able to pick up on the things that they understood versus the things that they didn't. And to realize that we can put all the effort we want here, but in the focus groups that I've conducted, our patients are telling us it's too little, too late. This is necessary, but not sufficient. We need these other things at different time periods along the way so that they can have a plan and know what's going on and who's responsible for what kinds of things. So it's not a Commission on Cancer standard, and I'm not promoting that or going to talk to anybody about making that happen. But I really think we should be thinking about the treatment plan and the survivorship care plan as bookends that they're given the one thing in the beginning, which includes websites that are credible and current. Because you know most families, if they have the resources, are going to go on that line and look. And then you, everybody rolls their eyes when they come in with all this crazy stuff. Well, we could preemptively use the internet as a way to extend and enhance what we're doing with patients by saying, here are two or three websites related to your cancer that I've reviewed and know is a good website. Start here. Most people won't go beyond that. And I actually include the websites in my survivorship care plans. And um, the other is then giving them 
the survivorship care plan then is reinforcing what they already know, reviewing what's actually happened, and then talking about the surveillance plan. And then what they really want to know is, now that my treatment's over, what can I do to keep the chance of the cancer coming back as best as possible? And that's when they're really open to hearing about physical activity if they haven't been doing it while they're on treatment, smoking cessation for the few, the small number of people who are still smoking, et cetera. So we have an opportunity to say, now here's what you can do to help prevent your cancer coming back as well. And then I just wanted to share with you um, some of the resources that are out there. Um, ASCO has a whole compendium on survivorship issues. They've redone their website, which this is not a screen of. But they also talk about how to build a cancer survivorship program. We have templates for five of the most common cancers there. Um, there's a lot of other documents, and we've actually just developed a cancer survivorship curriculum that we would like to be incorporated into programs across different professional groups so that we know that they're getting this information. Because one of the first things primary care providers will say, I don't even know what a recurrence looks like. What should I be looking for? You tell me what to do, and I'll be happy to do it. But tell it to me succinctly and clearly. Don't leave it guessing, because I only got an hour of this in medical school or nursing school. So we need to be very explicit around. So there's a lot of tools and resources and a number of papers that we've developed as a result of looking at some of these issues. Um, the other is NCCN, which constantly updates their guidelines, actually has a very good survivorship guideline. And there's a lot of symptom management in there that they update and review on a regular basis. So if you haven't gone into NCCN, it's a free registration. And then you can go in and look for disease-related modules as well as symptom management. And I think that this is a fairly good one. And it covers the most common um, complaints of patients. And then there's, um, for primary care providers, and I actually put a link to this in my survivorship care plan that goes to primary care providers, George Washington, under a grant with CDC and ACS, has online modules for primary care providers to teach them about cancer survivorship. And they're now going into um, disease-specific modules as well. So I include a brief statement about that and include the link at the bottom. Um, and it's, so it's a way to help encourage them to learn more if they want to. And I'll make these slides available to anybody afterwards if, if um, you need. And then these are a lot of other resources that have survivorship-related information, including there's um, Journey Forward for online survivorship care plans and the, the Livestrong Foundation uses OncoLink where people can go and self-populate their own care plans or if you don't have all their records where you can sit down and do it with them from the things that they remember. Some of those are very lengthy, like the Journey Forward one can get to be 10 to 15 pages by the time they're done. And OncoLink has a lot of good information, but you better be looking at the content because it's very high level and it's very explicit in some of the information that they talk about risk and prognosis and things like that. But there's a lot more that are going on. Um, but here's my, my bird's eye view of what I think is happening based on, on the last 15 years of doing survivorship work is I think we are really seeing a cultural shift in our society, but also in some of cancer care besides the uh, precision medicine on one hand to being precision care on the other. 
and that what more people are wanting and talking about is doing things about health promotion. How can I stay healthy during treatment and after? And so prehabilitation is going to be introduced as a way to get people in condition. Now, some people, if they have acute leukemia and they're being admitted and started within 12 hours or something like that, that's not a big window for prehab. But if you're being wait if you're waiting for a bone marrow transplant or if you're going to have breast surgery and reconstruction down the line, that's a perfect time to see somebody for prehabilitation. And actually, I'm getting my knee done at the end of June, and I'm seeing PT for prehab for getting myself in shape for my second surgery. And that principle would hold true for many of the patients that we see where they may be getting tests for 10 days or two weeks before we really know what the plan is. If they're deconditioned because they haven't been feeling well, it's a good opportunity to see what can be done to help get them in better shape. Um, and so people are being interested in this and will be asking more questions up front, not just when cancer's treatment's over. And now we're finding out that one size fits all doesn't really work because we created these templates doesn't mean you just print them out and hand them to every breast or colon patient that comes along. They still have to be tailored by the disease, the stage of the disease, the treatment they receive, but also who that individual is and what they've brought into the room with them along the way. The other is the shift that I've mentioned already about the shift to home care and self-management. There's a lot, there's all these apps that are being developed and programs, do physical activity in the home, do all your symptom management. I even heard that, and I'm, I'm, I haven't confirmed this, but there's one group that was going to do BMTs in the home, um, autologous transplants in the home. So, um, you know, we've shifted that from inpatient to a lot of it's going to outpatient now. And there's actually groups that are starting to think about being in the home where it may be safer to be with the bugs that are at home versus in the hospital. But we also have to remember, we need to screen to see if these people are capable of doing that. If they don't have the resources or if they live alone or they don't have a supportive family, we may be asked setting them up for failure if they're not capable of doing those things. So again, when we're developing programs, we can have program A, an online self-management program for people who can handle that, but program B, where somebody may have to go into the home to work with them for oh, those who can't quite do that. And then the fact is that we can't do a cookie cutter follow-up care, just like you can't do a cookie cutter treatment now. You know, breast cancer isn't breast cancer, colon cancer isn't colon cancer, and survivorship care is not gonna be survivorship care. It's gonna have to be tailored by risk and by other needs of the patient um, of what's going on. And so we can start with a cookie cutter approach, like everybody should get a care plan, but our experience should then tailor it to the populations we're working with and, and what we find out in our needs assessments of the populations we're working with. Um, and then the other is we are getting more and more data that if we're doing systematic patient-reported outcomes or symptom reporting using Promise or the CTACE or other kinds of phone apps that track things like, you know, nausea and vomiting or pain and things like that, that if you track patients' symptoms, they have better symptom management and they have less ER and unplanned hospitalization use. So what we're going to need to do is fold into all of this from day one more patient-reported outcomes because what happens in the visit is the photo. It's not the video of what's going on. And if they don't bring it up or we forget to ask, we may be missing something that means they're in the ER on Friday night. 
Um, so I think we're going to have to figure out how to do that better. And then the other is, with that tsunami of new patients coming through and the tsunami of survivors, we're going to have to think about who else can be delivering cancer care. And it, it's not going to be all of us. One is I'll be retired, so I'll be happy about that. But, <laughs> but we have to think about how do we work with other people. And I've always said at Oncology Nursing Society, our role isn't just to deliver cancer care. Our role is to work with other nurses so that they know how to work with people with cancer as well, because they show up on a med surge unit or they're seen in primary care. And we have to think about how do we extend and enhance our specialty into other areas, and how do you set up a triage so that they get referred back when they hit a certain level. And if, for those of you who are old enough to remember, you know, the cardiologists used to manage hypertension, right? That would be impossible today. But what happened is that knowledge and skill to learn how to manage that got shifted. And we're going to be doing some of that with some of the cancer care that we're delivering as well. So just remember, although a lot of this talk has been focused about this transition for when treatment ends for those with curative intent, there's a lot of other transitions for people, and we need to apply the same kind of thinking to all of that, and that the coordination is important. But the other thing that I wanted to bring up is it, we are all leaders in making this happen and changing practice. This isn't something that's going to come on down from high end unless it's a Commission on Cancer standard and you want to get it accredited, and then all of a sudden everybody's going, how are we going to do this? It's going to be all of us continually learning about how to keep improving our practices. Now, having done this for 40 years, it's way better than it was in 1975 when people barely got out of the hospital and we didn't have antiemetics. And I remember when we used our first Hickman catheter on our first, the acute leukemic who came in for consolidation therapy, and we had to do peripheral IVs for the first go-round, and then we used a Hickman catheter for the second. We thought we died and went to heaven. And now look at all the kinds of ports that we have. So we've come a long way, but we still have more to go. And how you do that, and how do you stay connected without getting burnt out or having compassion fatigue and keep learning in a way to keep improving care is something that you do together as a group. You do that by mentoring others who you know something that they can learn from and by being mentored by others. It's the hand up and the hand down that you pull each other along and you do this together. And when there was a... Um, a life cycle task force in ONS to see why people entered cancer nursing and then why they left it or how they stayed in it. And if you're a cancer nurse and you're in for two years, you're probably going to be in for the rest of your life. But if, you, if you're in for a year or two and it's not for you, you're going to rotate out by them. But what we found out about the people who stayed in, these were the reasons they stayed in. Um, they usually had an influential person in their training or their career that helped them to see the value of doing that kind of work, as well as seeing the nature of the work and the patients that they worked with and the environment and culture that kept them engaged in doing this. Um, and then in 2012, I don't know how many of you are familiar or have seen this, that ONS developed leadership competencies for staying involved. And the reason I bring this up here is because everybody has a level of responsibility for themselves under their own personal vision. And my elevator talk for what I do is I, my career is about improving cancer care. So if it falls in that domain, that's what I do. And, and then there's the knowledge of how you keep that up, interpersonal effectiveness, systems thinking, and personal mastery. And the document, which is free for download, goes into each of these areas. But if you can't do it for yourself, it's really hard to expect to do it at the workplace. 
you know, with your colleagues on your unit or wherever you're working. And if you do it there, then you want to make sure that that stuff is incorporated into the whole system so that it becomes the culture of caring and how to improve care. And I just throw that in because each of us have something we can take home from this today to think about how you might apply it tomorrow and do one thing a little different as a result of that. Um, and thinking about care because we know that living with cancer takes guts, but we can certainly help make it a little bit easier by paying attention to some of these things. So I want to thank you for your time, and I'm happy to answer questions I haven't mentioned about the Blue Ribbon Panel. If people want to talk about that or any other questions, I'm happy to hang around for that, but thank you.